Chapter Sixteen of An Outback Marriage by Andrew Barton Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Arrowhead Aussie. Chapter Sixteen: The Road to No Man's Land. Now we must follow for a time the adventures of Charlie Gordon and the new chum, whom we left just starting out for far back. Charlie to take over a cattle station for Old Man Grant and Carew to search for Patrick Henry Considine. After a short sea journey, they took a train to a dusty back blocks township where Gordon picked up one of the many outfits which he had scattered over the country, and which in this case consisted of a vehicle, a dozen or so of horses, and a black boy named Frying Pan. They drove four horses in a low American-made buggy and travelled about fifty miles a day. Frying Pan was invaluable. He seemed to have a natural affinity for horses. He could catch them anywhere and track them if they got lost. Carew tried to talk to him, but he could get little out of him, for he knew only the pigeon English, which is in use in those parts, and said, No more, to nearly every question. He rode along behind the loose horses, apparently quite satisfied with his own company. Every now and then he came alongside the vehicle and said, Tobacco? Charlie threw him a stick of the blackest, rankest tobacco known to the trade, and off he went again. Once they saw him get off his horse near a lagoon, plunge his arm into a hole, and pull out a mud turtle, an evil-smelling beast. This he carried for several miles over his shoulder, holding its head and letting the body swing at the end of the long neck, a proceeding which must have caused the turtle intense suffering. After a while his horse shied, and he dropped the turtle on the ground with a dull thud. "'Aren't you going to pick him up again?' cried Carew. "'No more,' replied Frying Pan carelessly. Then he grinned and volunteered a remark. "'Make that fellow pretty tired walk home again,' he said and this was his only conversation during a two-hundred-mile journey. At night they usually managed to reach a station, where the man in charge would greet them effusively, and beg them to turn their horses out and stay a week, or a year or two, just as long as they liked. They met all sorts at these stations, from English swells to bushmen of the roughest. Sometimes they camped out, putting hobbles on the horses and spreading their blankets under the buggy on a bed of long grass, gathered by frying-pan. As they got further out, the road became less and less defined, stations fewer and everything rougher. They left the sheep country behind them and got into cattle land, where runs are measured by the hundred square miles, and every man is a law unto himself. They left their buggy after a time and pushed on with pack horses, and after travelling about two hundred miles came to the outer edge of the settled district, where they stayed with two young Englishmen, who were living under a dray and building their cattle yards themselves the yards being a necessity, and the house, which was to come afterwards, a luxury. The diet was monotonous, meat, ad libitum, damper, and tea. They had neighbours within sixty miles, and got letters once in two months by riding that distance. Stay here a while, they said to the travellers, and take up some of the country nearby. We're to take over the country Redmond took up, said Charlie. It joins you, doesn't it? Yes. See those far blue ranges? Well, we run to them on this side, and Redmond's block runs to them on the other. Don't your cattle make out that way? asked Charlie. No fear, replied he, laughing. We've got some good boundary riders out there. What do you mean? The wild blacks, answered the Englishman. They're bad out on those hills. You'll find yourself in a nice shop when you take that block over. There's a pretty fair humpy to live in. That's one thing. What do you call the place? No man's land. Good name, too, said the other. It's not fit for any man. I wish you'd stop with us a while, but I suppose we'll see you coming back. I suppose so, said Charlie. We won't be there longer than we can help. 
Who's on the block now? Redmond sold his rights in it after he'd mortgaged it to his uncle. There's old Paddy Keogh there now, greatest old character in the North. Lives there with his blacks and a Chinaman. Regular oldest inhabitant sort of chap. Would have gone with Noah in the Ark, but he swore so badly they wouldn't have had him on board. You'll find him great fun. I suppose he'll give us possession all right. We don't want any trouble. He'd fire at you just as soon as look at you, I think, said the other. But I don't fancy he wants to stay there much. It's not the first time he's been broke, so I don't expect he'll take it very hard. Well, if you won't stay, good-bye and good luck. Give my best wishes to old Paddy. They resumed the weary journey, and after another two days' riding, sighted away over the plain a small iron house gleaming in the setting sun. Here we are, said Charlie. That's no man's land. The arrival was not inspiriting. They rode their tired horses up to the low-roofed galvanized iron house, that looked like a huge kerosene tin laid on its side with a hole cut out for a door and two holes for windows. There was no garden and no fenced yard. It was stuck down in the middle of the wilderness, glaring forlornly out its window at a wide expanse of dry grass and dull green bushes. Behind it was a small duplicate which served as a kitchen and store. A huge buffalo head was nailed to a tree nearby. In front was a rail on which were spread riding saddles, pack saddles, hobbles, surcingles, pannikins, bridles, empty bags, and all manner of horse gear, and round about were a litter of chips, an assortment of empty tins, bits of bullock hide, empty cartridge cases, and the bare skulls of three or four bullocks, with neat bullet holes between the eyes. Amidst this congenial debris roamed a herd of gaunt pigs, fierce-eyed, quarrelsome pigs, that prowled restlessly about, and ever and again returned disconsolately to the stinking carcasses of some large birds of prey that had been thrown out in the sun. They were flat-sided, long-legged, long-nosed, and had large bristling manes, showed, in fact, every sign of reverting to the type of the original pig that yachted with Noah. Living with them in a state of armed neutrality were three or four savage-looking cattle-dogs, who honoured the strangers with deep growls, not condescending to bark. Charlie pulled up in front of the house and cooed. A Chinaman put his head out of the kitchen door and smiled blandly, said, Hello, and retired. Gordon and Carew unsaddled the horses, put the hobbles on, and carried all the gear into the house. By this time the Chinese had done a dirty calico jacket, and began in silence to put some knives, forks, and pannikins on the table. Where's the old man? roared Charlie, as if he thought the Chinese were deaf. No more, he replied. Don't understand any English, eh? No more, said he. Just then a tramping of hoofs was heard, and looking out of the back door they saw about two hundred yards away a large horse-yard, over which hung a cloud of dust. Under the dust were signs of a struggle. He's in the yard, said Charlie. Let's go up. The cloud of dust shifted from place to place, and out of it came a melody of weird oaths, at the dull thudding of a waddy, and the heavy breathing of men and animals in combat. Suddenly a lithe, sinewy black boy, dressed in a short blue shirt, bounded like a squirrel to the top of the fence, and perched there, and through the mist they saw a very tall old man, holding on like grim death to the end of a long rope, and being hauled about the yard in great jumps by a half-grown steer. Behind the steer another black boy dodged in and out, welting and prodding it from time to time with a bamboo pole. Maddened by the blows, the steer would dash forward and narrowly miss impaling the man on his horns. Then— Taking advantage of his impetus, the old man would try to haul him into a smaller yard. Every time he got to the gate, the steer yanked him out again by a series of backward springs that would have hauled along a dromedary, and the struggle began all over again. 
The black boy on the fence dropped down with the agility of a panther, took up the rope behind the old man, and pulled for all he was worth. "'Hit him there, Billy! Whack him! Come on, you son of a cow! I'll pull you in if I have to pull your head off! Come on, now!' And once more the struggle raged furiously. Charlie clambered up on the fence and sat there for a moment. The old man saw him, but evinced no surprise. He just said, "'Here, mister, whoever you are, catch hold of that rope!' Their united forces were too much for the steer, and he was hauled in by main strength under a fusillade of bamboo on his stern. Once in the small yard, he abandoned the struggle and charged wildly at his captors. The old man slipped nimbly to one side. Gordon darted up the nearest fence, while Carew and the black boy got tangled up with the rope. In the suave quipu which ensued, Carew pushed the black down on the ground right in front of the steer, which immediately fell over him and tangled him up more than ever. Then it turned on him with a roar of rage, butted him violently, rolled him over and over in the dirt, knelt on him, bellowed on his ear, and slobbered on him. It looked as if the boy must be killed. His mate dashed in with a bamboo and welted and whacked away without making any impression, till the animal of its own accord withdrew gloomily to a corner of the yard, dragging the rope after it. Carew watched the prostate boy in agonized suspense, hardly daring to hope that he was alive. With a gasp of satisfaction he saw him rise to his feet, rub some of the dirt off his face, and look round at the steer. Then he gave his shirt a shake, and began to brush himself with his hands, saying in an indignant tone, "Flame and bullock, spoil my new shirt!' Now all hands seized the rope again. In a trice the bullock was hauled up against the fence, thrown to the ground, and held there while the old man sawed off the point of one horn, which was growing into the animal's eye. When the job was done, he straightened himself up, and through the covering grime and dust they had a good look at him. He had a long red nose, a pair of bright hazel eyes, and a bushy grizzled beard and moustache hiding all the lower part of his face. On his head was a shapeless felt hat from which a string passed under his nose. His arms were hairy and baboon-like. His long thin legs seemed intended by nature to fit the side of a horse. He wore tweed pants, green with age, and strapped on the inside with a lighter coloured and newer material. Also a very dirty coloured cotton shirt, open in front, and showing a large expanse of hairy chest. His voice was husky from much swearing at profligate cattle, and there was a curious nasal twang in his tone, a sort of affectation of Americanism that was a departure from the ordinary bush drawl. Charlie introduced himself. My name's Gordon, he said, and this is a friend of mine. We've come to take this block over. You're welcome to it, mister, said the old man promptly. It's about broke me, and if you don't look out, it'll break you. Any man that gets this place will hump his swag from it in five years, mark me. Come on down to the house. He continued picking up the rope and other gear laying about the fence. Now, you boys, let that steer out, and then go and help the gins bring the cattle in. Look lively now, you tallow-faced crawlers. Come on, mister. Did you bring any square face with you? "'We brought a drop of rum,' replied Charlie. "'Ha! That'll do. That's the real Mackay,' said the veteran, slouching along at a perceptibly quicker gait. "'But look, see here now, mister,' he continued anxiously. "'You didn't let our lawyer get hold of it, did you? He's a real terror, that chow of mine. Did you see him when you came in?' "'Yeah, we saw him. He couldn't speak any English, seemingly.' "'That's him,' said the old man. "'That's him. He don't savvy much English. He knows all he wants, so he can lower the rum with any Christian ever I see.' It don't do to let him get his hands on a bottle of anything in the spirit line. It'll come back half empty. Now then, cook, he roared, seating himself at the rough slab table and drumming on it with a knife. 
Let's have some grub, quick, and you'll get a nip of rum. This new boss belong to you. You savvy? All about station belong him. I go buffalo shooting. Me stony broke. Poor fellow me. Been fifteen years in this god-forgotten country, too, he said reminiscently, placing his elbows on the table and gazing at the wall in front of him. Fifteen years living mostly with the blacks and the chiny man, and living like a black or a chiny man, too. And what have I got to show for it? I've got to hump my bluey out of this and take to the road like any other broken-down old swagman. It's a bit rough, said Charlie. How did you come to grief? Oh, I came out here with a big mob of cattle, said the old man, filling his pipe, as our Lloyd placed some tin plates, a tin dish, and a bottle of Worcester sauce on the table, and withdrew to the kitchen for the provender. I lived here, and I spent nothing, and I let him breed. I just looked on, and let him breed. Oh, there's no waste about my management. I hadn't an overseer at two pounds ten a week to boss a lot of flash stockmen at two pounds. I just got my own two gins and three good black boys, and I watched them cattle like a blessed father. I never saw a stranger's face from year's end to year's end. I rode all over the face of the earth, keeping track of them. I kept the wild blacks from scaring them to death and spearing of them, as is their nature too, and I got speared myself in one or two little shooting excursions I had. Shooting the blacks, interpolated Gordon. Something like that, mister. I did let off a rifle a few times, and I dare say one or two poor ignorant blackfellow countrymen that had been funnin' my cattle as full of spears as so many hedgehogs. I dare say they got in the road of a bullet or two. They're always getting in the road of things. But we don't talk of shooting blacks nowadays. These parts is too civilised. It's risky. Anyhow, I made them blacks let my cattle alone, and I slaved like a driven nigger day in and day out, Brandon calves all day long in the dust, with the sun that hot, the brand and iron had mark without putting it in the fire at all. And then down comes the tick, and kills my cattle by the hundred, dying and perishing all over the place. And what lived through it, I couldn't sell anywhere, because they won't let tick-infested cattle go south, and the Dutch won't let us ship em north to Java, the wretches. And then Mr. Grant's debt was over everything, and at last I had to chuck it up. That's how I got broke, mister. I hope you'll have better luck. While he was delivering this harangue, Carew had been taking notes of the establishment. It was just a rough table, three boxes to sit on, a meat safe, a few buckets, and a rough set of shelves, supporting a dipper and a few tin plates, and tins of jam, while in the corner stood some rifles and a double-barreled gun. Saddlery of all sorts was scattered about the floor promiscuously. Certainly the owner of no man's land had not lived luxuriously. A low garvelinized iron partition divided the house into two rooms, and through the doorway could be seen a rough bunk made of bags stretched on saplings. As the old man finished speaking, our Lloyd brought in the evening meal, about a dozen beautifully tender roast ducks in a large tin dish, a tin plate full of light, delicately browned cakes of the sort known as puffed-de-lunas, and a huge billy of tea. There were no vegetables, pepper and salt were in plenty, and Worcester sauce. They ate silently, as hungry men do, while the pigs and cattle-dogs marched in at the open door, and hustled each other for the scraps that were thrown to them. "'How is it the pigs have no tails?' asked Carew. "'Bit off, mister. The dogs bit them off. They've got the ears pretty much well chawed off, too.' Just then a pig and a dog made a simultaneous rush for a bone, and the pig secured it. The dog, by way of revenge, fastened onto the pig and made him squeal like a locomotive engine whistling. The old man kicked at large under the table, and restored order. "'You ain't eatin', mister,' he said, forking a duck onto Carew's plate with his own fork. 
These ducks is all right. They're thick on the lagoon. The chow only had two cartridges, but he got about a dozen. He lays down and fires along the water, and they're floating very near solid on it. But here's the cattle coming up. Looking out of the door, they saw about two hundred cattle coming in a long, stringing mob up the plain, driven by four black figures on horseback. As they drew near the yards, several cattle seemed inclined to bolt away, but the sharp fusillade of terrific whips kept them up to the mark, and, after a sudden halt for a few minutes, the mob streamed in through the gates. A number of rails were put in the posts and made fast with pegs. The riders then remounted and came cantering and laughing down to the homestead. All four were aboriginals. Two were the boys that had been seen at the yard. The other two new boys were dressed in moleskins, cotton shirts, and soft felt hats, and each had a gaudy handkerchief tied round his throat. One was light, wiry, and graceful as a gazelle, a very handsome boy, the embodiment of lightness and activity. The other was short and squat, with a broad face. Both grinned light-heartedly as they rode up, let the horses go, and carried their saddles onto the veranda without bothering about the strangers. "'Those are nice-looking boys,' said Carew. "'I mean the two new boys just coming in.' "'New boys,' said the old man. "'Them. They're my two gins. And see here, mister. You'll have to keep off hanging around them while you're camped here. I can't stand anyone interfering with them. If you kick my dog, or go after my gin, then you'll rouse all the monkey in me. Those two do all my cattle work. Come here, Maggie,' he called, and the slight boy— walked over with a graceful easy swing. "'This is new feller,' he said, introducing Carew, who bowed gracefully. "'He belongs Sydney. You think him plenty nice feller, eh?' "'Yowie,' said the girl, laughing. "'He nice feller. You got a matches?' she said, beaming on Carew, and pulling a black pipe out of her trousers pocket. "'Big fool, that Lucy. Drop em matches.' Carew handed over his matchbox, in speechless amazement. "'They've been out all day with the cattle,' said the old man. I've got a lot of wild cattle in that there mob. I go out with a few quiet ones in the moonlight, and when the wild cattle come out of the scrubs to look at em, we rush the whole lot out into the plain. Great hands these gins are, just as good as the boys. Good Lord, said Carew, looking at the two little figures, who now had a couple of ducks each, a puff to lunar or two, and a big pannikin of tea, and were sitting on the edge of the veranda eating away with great enjoyment. What have they been doing with the cattle today? Minding them? lest the wild ones should clear out. They dropped their matches somehow. That's what fetched em home early. They'll have to sleep on the veranda tonight. We'll make that their boudoir, as they say in France. The dark was now falling. The sunlight had left long, faint, crimson streaks in the sky. The air was perceptibly cooler, and flights of waterfowl hurried overhead, making their way to the river. The Chinaman lighted a slush lamp, by whose flickering light Charlie produced from his swag a small bundle of papers, and threw them on the table. "'We might as well get our business over, Keogh,' he said. "'I've got the paper here for you to sign, making over your interest in the block and the cattle and all that.' He poured over the document, muttering as he read it. "'Your name will have to be filled in, and there's a blank for the name of the person it's transferred to. That'll be Mr. Grant's name,' suggested Carew. "'I don't know so much about that,' said Charlie. "'I don't think if a man has a mortgage over a place that he can take it in his own name. That fool Pinnock didn't tell me—' He was too anxious to know how we got on with the larrikins to give me any useful information. Anyhow, I'll fill in my own name. For all the block is worth, I ain't likely to steal it. I can transfer it to Mr. Grant afterwards. I don't care, said the old man indifferently. I'll transfer my interest to anyone you like. I'm done with it. I'm signing away fifteen of the best years of my life. 
but my name ain't Keogh, you know, though I always went by that. My father died when I was a kiddie, and my mother married again, so I got called by my stepfather's name all my life. This is my right name, and it's a poor man's name today. And as the two men bent over him in the light of the flickering slush lamp, he wrote, with stiff, uncertain fingers, Patrick Henry Considine. End of chapter 16